Hello, I'm Osher. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. Today's episode is with Hugh Van Quillenberg. I make this show with two other people, Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer, and I couldn't do it without them. I pay them because they are very valuable human beings and they deserve to be paid for the work they do to make sure this show happens every week, twice a week. To help them pay them, to help me pay them, you might hear an ad. If you hear an ad, thank you. You're helping this podcast happen. If you're not, you're going to hear Hugh say some cool stuff. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How do you put the work in on gratitude? It's pretty simple. Just write down at the end of the day, three things that went well for you. What went well today? Now, this question has been cited over 6,200 times in academic papers across the country. So it's the research behind it is prolific really. But if you write down three things that went well for you every single day, what happens is after three weeks, you start to scan the world for the positives. You become better at paying attention to the positives. And after six weeks' time, incredible things start to happen to you. So greater energy levels, less likely to get sick. You're happier, you're more enthusiastic, more focused, more determined, more optimistic. If you're going to write down three things that went well for you during the day, if I could add a question to that, what are you looking forward to most tomorrow? I think is a really powerful one because you might look at it and go, there's actually nothing tomorrow. It's a bit of Groundhog Day in my life. So create something looking forward to, whether it's a, a Zoom coffee with a friend or whether it's a walk down to the river with your kids or whatever it is, have something you're looking forward to. I think that's really important when we're talking about gratitude. That is author and founding director of the Resilience Project, Hugh Van Quellenberg. And this is episode 351 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for downloading the show. Glad you can be here. This is episode 351 with Hugh Van Quellenberg. If you've never listened to this show before, welcome. This is a podcast designed to hopefully, well, I'm going to say I guarantee, make today better than yesterday. Something you hear on the show today will make you go, you know what? When you go to bed tonight, you'll be like, you know what? Today was pretty good. 
go, I listen to this thing today and it made me kind of think about stuff a little differently. I feel a bit better than I did yesterday. That's what every show is here to do. Mondays I speak with a guest, Fridays I speak with you. I'm uh, Oshie Ginsberg. I'm a TV host, a podcaster, an author, a bicycle riding guy, father, a stepfather, a husband. I'm from Sydney, Australia, but right now I'm in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, if you're listening to this in five years from now, or if you're listening to this today, Monday, the uh, 24th of August, I'm currently in isolation in Melbourne. You may have seen the news, and so you'll know why I'm in isolation. So uh, uh, I'm okay at this point. Um, Yeah. Out of respect for everyone else involved, I don't want to say anything too much more, but... Yeah. I'm grateful I can be with you here today very, very much. I'm recording this yesterday, so you are hearing this the day after I'm recording it, but yesterday was Wolfgang's first birthday, Uh, my son Wolfgang. I've got two kids. One of them's uh, Georgia, who's now nearly 16. Oh, no, nearly 17. Crikey. And Wolfie is our son. He's um, just turned one. And I was thinking a lot about Audrey and the lead up to his birth and what she did on that day to bring him into the world safely and to make sure she was able to get him into the world safely and that they both survived this incredibly possibly dangerous thing. Watching her that day was easily the single greatest thing I've ever seen. Any feat of physicality, mental strength, focus, determination, I've never seen anything like that. And I've seen some pretty amazing sporting and athletic things. But my goodness, I don't know how, I really don't know how any partner could watch the the woman who's giving birth to their child watch that and not be immediately transformed and go, all right, no, I'm not the powerful one here. She's the powerful one. She's the one with all the, she's got it all. I'm just the guy. Well, I'm just, that's the one. Holy shit. Amazing. She's an incredible human being. And Wolf is such a lovely guy. He's such a good guy. He loves his sister, Georgia. He saves a smile just for her. He's got a smile that he doesn't bring out for me or mum. He just saves it for his big sister. And I love watching her and him together. He's a great guy. He has been born into a very interesting time in history, probably the most interesting time in history in quite some time. And uh, he really does light our path as we walk through this time in our lives. Um, we're really lucky um, to have him. I'm grateful to those of you who reached out to make sure I was okay. I'm very grateful for that. You can always email me, send us your email at gmail.com. Thank you for sending me the, send me the photos of where you're listening. I love seeing where you listen to the show. Isabella is making coffees in South Melbourne, not far from where I am. So, hey, thanks, Isabella, for... Making those coffees, people need them. People need to get that caffeine. Got to get out there. There's essential work that needs to be done and people need that. Caffeine's an essential service, man. Isabella, you're you're doing good work. You're doing it for the country. You are. You really are. Uh, Thank you so much for facing the public every day. Another email came in, a bit of a tough one from, it's not her real name, Belinda, I'll call her. Listen to the episode on conspiracy theories. She turned to that episode after her sister uh, slipped down the rabbit hole of the the YouTube horror show and just sending her conspiracy horror fear videos each week, you know, about 
martial law is going to be declared and all kinds of complete bullshit. Remember that not all wars are fought with guns and political destabilisation and lack of fomenting lack of trust in governmental institutions is definitely a weapon to be used by bad actors, whether they be state-based or not. So just be try to be resilient to that stuff, Belinda. And, yeah, it's really tough watching a loved one go through that sort of stuff. It's a very tough spot to be in. Perhaps you may want to consider the Rutger Bregman episode a couple episodes back or... One thing that might also help you just kind of get a handle on the the headspace that goes into these sorts of things, episode 281 I did with Jo Thornley. She's an expert on cults and uh, it's kind of interesting the, the similar recruitment that goes on in both. It's really, really interesting. But, yeah, thanks so much for the support while I've been away. It does suck being away from everybody. But, yeah, I really appreciate those of you who reached out. It's really nice. But, you know, when I – get back and I get out of this isolation and I, you know, then I'll go into my hotel quarantine, you know, I'm missing Wolfie's birthday today and I'll probably miss Audrey's birthday and if you, you, but she is an extraordinary woman, my wife Audrey, and she understands, she understands why we are doing this, her and me, but we all have to do the things we have to do. Like I said the other week, our first state officer at work, she said, it's not every day you get a chance to save somebody's life and by going into hotel quarantine, that's what you're doing. We've just got to do the right thing. We've got to do the right thing for our sake and for the sake of everybody. We really do. Wash your hands, wear a mask, keep your distance. Don't go out if you don't have to. I'm living in an apartment at the moment. I've got a plastic bag um, recycling it from the groceries. My shoes go in that. So I, I hang it on the back of the door. I reach in from the hallway of the apartment, take my shoes off from the hallway, put the shoes in the plastic bag so I don't walk into the house all the clothes that were outside, they go in a particular pile, you know, there's the outside clothes and I have a Gattaca shower and then I get in my inside clothes. All the groceries get washed, but this is just what you've got to do. This is just what you've got to do. It's a nasty, nasty, sneaky bastard of a virus. But this is what we have to do now. This is the things we do now. Like there was a time when we didn't even have a mobile phone and then we had mobile phones. So like, oh my God, I've got to charge it all the time. So yeah, that's just what you do. You just plug it in, charge it. My phone battery doesn't last all day. Okay, I bought another battery. Great. It's just what we do. It's like, okay, it's just a part of it. We'll be okay if we get on top of these sorts of things. And you know what? And I think about it on the larger perspective, if it takes something like this for us as a nation to kind of, maybe we can use this to grasp this opportunity to, think in a more collective way rather than an individual way, that can only be a good thing for all of us because thinking collectively, in my opinion, thinking collectively is the only way that we are going to face the challenges of our generation. Pandemics, this is a pandemic, this is a challenge of our generation and the only way we can defeat it is by thinking collectively, thinking about we, not me. Same with climate change. We have to think collectively. Thinking selfishly is the ally of a pandemic. Thinking selfishly is the ally of climate change. Thinking of we, not me, is the way to defeat and triumph over both of those things and find possibility and abundance in both of those things by thinking collectively. And I believe a collective mindset and free market economies can exist together. I really do. But that's, uh, that's for another podcast, I'd imagine. Hey, before we get into our guest, uh, Hugh, if tales of positive mindset and gratitude in the face of adversity are the kind of thing that you need to hear at the moment, 
and I know I sure do. Perhaps you'd like to sit right back and hear the tale of Paul de Gelder, an Australian naval diver who lost one leg and one arm in a horrific shark attack in Sydney Harbour and has since gone on to become an internationally known motivational speaker and shark conservationist. You can hear him in episode 263 if you scroll back a bit. Acceptance? Do I have to accept being disabled? Fuck no. Mentally and emotionally, I'm stronger than I've ever been and I do things in my life and my career that the average person will never get to do. I don't accept I'm disabled. I don't accept I can do less than you. I do accept that I had to learn how to tie my shoelaces with one hand. I do accept I had to learn how to write left-handed. But there's no obstacle that is so great in any of our lives that you cannot go around it, over it, or straight through it with the right tools. And, and sometimes that tool's just the right mindset. That is the absolute motivator, you know, the absolute tool that you can use. Our minds are so strong. I, I just created this whole new life that I could have never believed because I chose to in my mind. That's Paul de Gelder, episode 263 Better Than Yesterday. Just scroll back a bit in your podcast feed and you'll find it there. So let me tell you about my guest today. Hugh Van Quillenberg is a name synonymous with the I guess the mindset of lasting happiness. Hugh has been working in education for nearly 18 years now, both as a primary and a secondary school teacher. He has completed postgraduate studies uh, looking at resilience and well-being. He's developed and facilitated programs for more than a thousand schools across Australia. And he's worked with elite sporting teams at the highest of high levels, the NRL, the Australian cricket team, the Australian netball team, the Australian women's soccer team, the Australian women's rugby league team, 10 AFL teams and the Australian Olympic Committee, as well as every single team in the A-League, the soccer. So he's definitely in demand. What he speaks of is seen as incredibly valuable and a pathway to achievement. It's fair to say he knows what he's talking about. He's gone to the extraordinary gracious trouble of writing a book. The book is called The Resilience Project, which is also the name of the project that he works on. It's called theresilienceproject.com.au is where you can find it, theresilienceproject.com.au. The book is called The Resilience Project, Finding Happiness Through Gratitude, Empathy and Mindfulness. Get it where you get your books. Now, this chat was a little while back because of the amount of TV production that I've been doing in 2020. I did have to record a bunch of episodes in a bit of a tight group a few months back. Normally, it's never an issue. Um, however, because this ever-evolving pandemic that we're in, uh, in that things change day to day, week to week, this chat is a little bit out of sync uh, with the current situation. There was no second wave at this point. Um, there were no border closures and we were still talking about everything's kind of weird but okay. It's still weird but it's still okay. It's just a different kind of weird right now. So still so much of what Hugh has to say is really important. It's just absolutely timeless. So enjoy this conversation. And I hope you get a lot out of it as we chat with Hugh Van Coylenberg. How are you, buddy? You good? Uh, yeah, going well. Going really well. Yeah, it's been an interesting time for everyone, but I, I feel like I'm going well. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't let me interrupt your uh, coffee there. Mate, firstly, I'm very grateful that you could join me here, Hugh, because the amount of emails and DMs and tweets that I've got requesting you to get on this show are significant. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are loving the work that you're doing. 
and um, I'm just really grateful that you were able to make the time for this. Uh, pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to be on here. Thanks for having me. It's a ripper. But, but your your story, I know you've probably told it a squillion times in a thousand school halls, <laughs> but uh, there's always people, this is their first podcast. You know, this is the first time that anyone's ever heard my voice. And, this, you know, there's always a first time to have a conversation about stuff. But if you don't mind, I'd love to get into kind of how you discovered the, the thing that you now help people discover themselves. We'll get to that. Can I just ask what part of the world you're in right now? Well, I'm in Collingwood in our office. We've turned one of our offices into a studio to do webinars because our business is all, a lot of it's face-to-face presentations. So we've had to adjust and we're now doing so many webinars in this tiny little room that I'm in, but I've just come from uh, Alfington. So I live in Alfington. We're about 10 minutes away. So I have to say, for example, I did a webinar this morning for a group in Adelaide. To do that, ordinarily, I would have flown the night before, taxi, hotel, taxi to the venue, fly home, get home at peak hour in Melbourne and not get home till late. And, and um, yeah, I was driving from Alfington to Collingwood, 10 minutes, do the presentation, I'm done. It's uh, really enjoying it, I have to say. <laughs> it is an interesting after effect of something that is so deadly and so destructive. Yeah. Yeah, totally is. For so many people that we are able to discover, like, so most most people would hear, oh, I get to go to another city. I get to go and travel. Yet after a while, it's so much time away from the people that you would rather be around and uh, time that you can't do anything else in. I mean, it's a bit easy now. We've got a smartphone. You can a little bit. But if you're traveling to Adelaide, you can't really do work on a plane, particularly if it's sensitive work, because people are looking at it. You can't do that. Yeah. We've, for years, people have been saying, please do webinars and please do online chats and make it more accessible. And I'm saying, no, nah, it's not engaging. It doesn't have the same effect. And and I will now will be saying to people, I'll be pushing them to book in this format because I've loved doing it. It's got the same impact, I think. At least I hope it does. I can tell from people doing the emoticon thumbs up and clappy hands while I'm talking that they're enjoying it. And yeah, it's much easier on me and more importantly, much easier on my family. Uh, Right. And that's an extraordinary part of it, isn't it? We have a three-month-old at home. Wow. Perfect. Who hasn't – well, so we've got got two kids. We've got a three-year-old who has been a beautiful child of late – and I don't know what this is. I'd heard about the terrible twos, right. but no one had told me about what happens when they turn three. Uh-huh. For 5% of the day, he is a complete psychopath. Like right. he said to me, how's this? Asha, he said to me the other day, we're lying in bed together and he pointed at me and he said, the two things, he said, I don't love you, now cry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, who is this? And so we're dealing with that plus a, a three-month-old who's teething currently and I just it – is, <laughs> it's an interesting time to be locked in a home with a, with a psychopath three-year-old and a, who is ordinarily – he's a beautiful child yeah. but can be a psychopath and then a baby who's teething. It has been intense. Yeah, watching Wolfie teething at the moment, A, I'm glad I don't remember it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And B, it makes me go, shit, I did a lot of work to get these. I should floss more. <laughs> you know? Oh, and I, at first, initially, and I know you'll probably, you may relate to this, initially I was a bit like, if I couldn't soothe him and then Audrey came into the room, I'd be like, come on, I've got this. I can soothe the baby. You don't have to take him off. My ego would jump in and get in the way. But now I get that 
she's got some superpower that I don't have. And what matters is not my little man ego. What matters is this little man. And she's got something, she's got some pheromone signal that she emits yeah. that I don't. And when he yeah. smells it, he's like, oh, fine, I'm cool now. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I thought it was the way that Penny was holding. Her name's Elsie. And I was looking at the way Penny was holding her going, I'm pretty sure that's how I do it. Why, why am I not getting the same calming influence over it? <laughs> and that's fine, you know? And like, it, there's a particular look, tone of cry that he makes that I'm like, all right, that's it. My powers have li- reached their limitations. <laughs> I now have to level up. And, and call, he's letting me know. He's calling the boss. But it's ex- look, it's an extraordinary time. And um, look, mate, I, I, look, I'm grateful, even though work is you know, a bit up in the air and we, we're trying very hard to make sure that we can work again. Having this time to be around the baby like I am yes. has been extraordinary. Yeah. I said this the other day, I can't remember where, but you could not tell my three-year-old and my three-month-old that this is a bad thing. <laughs> now, like, daddy's home, daddy's home every single day. This is, yeah, that just wouldn't have happened. I'm, I'm interstate most weeks. So I've been at home every single night and every single morning of the first three months of Elsie's life. And that was never going to happen. Like yeah. that, it was going to be every second day, every third day. So I, yeah, you talk about gratitude, my gosh. Um, yeah. I'm not saying this, it's an awful thing that's happened, but if we're going to get bogged down by the really awful stuff, let's also yeah. scan the world for what the good stuff that's happening because we're surrounded by it. And, and I guess the other thing as well, having Wolf around, Wolf doesn't give a shit. Yeah. He doesn't care. He's like... I don't care, you know, whatever your mortgage is going to do. I don't care that you're going to may or may not do this thing again or that show or whatever. That's fine. Right now, I'm eating avocado. And I don't know if you know this, but avocado is the greatest thing that I've ever put in my mouth. And I want you to share this with me. And you've got no option but just to go, you know what, mate? You're the boss now. That is 100% right. (laughs) This moment, this exact moment of you eating this thing and your face going, whoa, like, that's it. That's as good as it gets. And if he's eight months old, there's that's saying something because he probably put a lot of things in his mouth at eight months old. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's right into that. He's he's very, uh, he's like a shark, basically. (laughs) You know, it's exploring with his with his mouth at the oh, at the moment. But look, mate, I'm grateful that that you've found an ability to have some agility in that in your business, and that you're able to indeed keep going. Particularly a business that involves seminars and being in rooms full of packed people, and built around scaling a message and a business that's built on how many people can we get in the room. Not no, not that would dilute your message, but. We all know that I can hear something one-on-one. That's one thing. But if I'm in a room of a 1,000 people and we all get it at once, somehow it's so much more powerful, you know? It's why churches work. Totally. <laughs> you know? That's, yeah, totally, totally. That's a, I've never actually thought about it like that, but it's like when people say, oh, do you get really nervous when there's huge crowds? I'm actually more relaxed when there's a bigger crowd. If I'm presenting to 20 people, that makes me a little bit on edge. But if there's 2,500 people at the convention center, I couldn't be more comfortable. And I think that's why what you just said, like when everyone gets it together, it is the most incredible feeling and it's so energizing. It truly is. And there must be something to do with the idea that it's not on me solely to understand this. You know, I want this person to know that they're communicating to me effectively. And yeah. if, if I don't get it, I might sit there and go, oh, I don't know. And I might fake it or whatever. But because yeah. I have the anonymity of the massive people, I'm yeah. able to kind of maybe put my guard down a bit or whatever. I don't know. Look, it's an interesting thing. I get it. And it, it works because that's the way that we have 
influenced ideas to hundreds, if not thousands of people at a time for generations, it's less one-on-one. You're able to, you create revolutions when you can talk to more people at once. Well, speaking of speaking in a big room, my wife and her mum went to see you speak in uh, Melbourne. And the reason they did that, uh, well, a variety of reasons, but my wife, and I know a lot about your story because my wife has struggled with OCD since she was a kid. And so when I first discovered that she was struggling with OCD, I wanted to educate myself as much as possible to work out how on earth I could support her the best. And when I heard that you had struggled with OCD over the time, and and I know yours is around the environment, that was your sort of OCD and global warming. Yeah, Penny went along and heard you speak and was was really moved by it, loved it, and mum loved it, bought the book and everything. So. And so I see. So I'm very aware of your journey. I oh, feel cool, really. Man. I'm so thrilled to be on this podcast because <laughs> I um, yeah, just know a lot about you. Just because I've taken, I don't know if solace is the right word, but I've taken a lot from your situation and helping me live with Penny, who's living with OCD. Well, thanks, man. I'm I'm grateful for that. And those gigs were fun. The Melbourne gigs were fun. It's interesting because like when I did those shows, I was able to put some songs in there because I'm not a very good actor. So I put some songs in there to get us through the really sticky parts. So, which is also, you know, it's fun to sing songs about not forgetting to take your meds. Um, but, um, but yeah, and I'm, and that, that's the really interesting thing is that our brains have evolved. I was speaking with a mate this morning over 250 million years or something. Our brains have evolved and there's a few things that, you know, we have because that's what helped us survive. And we are the sum total of all the things that helped us survive. Some of those things we don't need anymore, like our appendix, for example. But we're a little tail that sits at the bottom of our sacrum. We don't need that, but we still have them. And there's things that are exist in our brain, you know, and, and some of us, those switches are turned up higher and louder than they are in others. And some people, they're very difficult, if not impossible to turn off. And one of those things, one of those switches is this is only happening to me. And that's wild that we have this automatic reaction to believe, oh, this, I'm alone. And this is the only person this is happening to in the world. This is me. This is it. I must be something wrong with me. Mm. And for some reason, that's what our brains do. And they believe that it's personal, it's permanent, and it's global in that it's, this is only happening to me. This is how it's going to be forever. And it affects every single part of my life and will forever and for all time. Mm. But those three things aren't true. But that's the initial reaction to it. That's a safety response for some reason, because I guess that means I therefore now have to avoid this if I want to stay alive for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, totally. And it's in challenging that, that we are able to kind of move beyond the restraints of that, those thinking patterns. And part of the personal thing was like, shit, I've got to talk about what's happening to me because I felt so alone, but I know I'm not alone because this is written up in a squillion books. So if I talk about it, then hopefully that'll make other people feel a little less alone and slowly, 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 slowly. So look, I'm, look, I'm bloody grateful that they came along. Those were really, that was, those were top gigs. We got to take mm-hmm. G and her friends down to Melbourne and, and they got to come and see the shows. And yeah, I was singing songs about doing cocaine off a grand piano in front of my teenager, like, ah, okay, yeah. this is a conversation for later. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh which is interesting yeah it was just, i remember that show that f- there was two shows in a row and i think on the friday night show there was like the equivalent of a um of a low strength tropical cyclone in fucking melbourne and i'm like <laughs> yeah. oh jesus fucking christ of course <laughs> you know, of course a tropical weather pattern is happening in melbourne the night i do it <laughs> Show a tropical weather pattern 2,000 kilometers from where it should be. Fuck. <laughs> it was funny. It was, it was a funny gig. Anyway, did you grow up in Melbourne? Is that where you came from? Yeah, yeah. Melbourne, very much Melbourne born and bred. And 
every time I go and do a talk in Brisbane or, or anywhere where the weather's really nice, I always come home to Penny and say, I don't know why we live in Melbourne. <laughs> But it's such a wonderful place. I love Melbourne very much and um, not the weather but everything else about it I love. There's, I always feel like the debate between Sydney and Melbourne, like Sydney looks so much better than Melbourne. Like it's so much better looking that we have to have a good personality. <laughs> so, oh, my God. That's, that's always been my theory. Like oh. I hope Melbourne's got a good personality. We just have to because like, oh. we don't look very good. <laughs> Mate, I, I would I would move to Melbourne tomorrow if I had to work there, you know. I would. It's And I've yeah. already I've already uh, had the, the indoctrination trip with Audrey to, uh, right. you know. Yep. Okay. Because she only went down there for work, like for a day or two. And so I, I did some, I did, a, you know, work down there for a couple of days and I took her down there for a couple of days. She's like, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, uh, you ended up very, very far from Melbourne as a part of your university. What did you go to? You went to university to study education, didn't you? I did. Yeah. yeah. I studied at, uh, well, straight out of university, I did something because I was told by a career person I should do neuropsychophysiology. What and is I, that? And, yeah, I know. I couldn't even spell it, so I was never going to do too well. But I did neuropsychophysiology and it I just wanted to be a school teacher. And I was sitting there going, Why what am I doing this for? I want to be a school teacher. So you're 17 years old and someone says, I want you to do neuros you would be a great neuropsychophysiologist. That's what you should do. And you went, <laughs> okay, because I do what grown-ups tell me. I guess so. I was, I had this scholarship at the Victorian Institute of Sport and part of that, which was a great program, but part of that, they gave you a career person. And I remember saying, oh, I'd like to be a primary school teacher. And they said, yeah, well, you can always do that one day, but you've got the marks to get into neuropsychophysiology. You should do that. And then if you don't like it, then you can go to primary school teaching. And part of me went, I don't think I'll like that, but okay. And then did it. And I did two years and I hated it. And I, I just wanted to do teaching. And so... Yeah, I went into teaching. So I, it took me a while to get into teaching, but about three or four years out of school, I found primary school teaching and I loved it. Like I just loved everything about it. It was very special. What was your sport? Uh, cricket. I played cricket, yeah, and played up until a couple of years ago. And I should have retired a long time ago, but it's quite an addictive. Oh, uh, no. My youngest brother, he plays, I think he's got like three teams that he plays in. He plays a warehouse <laughs> game. He plays an indoor game. Yeah. He used to live in a share house. The share house is still in the family of family and friends, I should say. Um, they yeah. have a full-size cricket pitch in the backyard up in Queensland and oh. <laughs> every Friday with nets and everything. It's in the back of a Queensland, mate. It's perfect. And every Friday, oh. all the boys come around and they, they have a hit every Friday for I years. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's, it just it gets under your skin, cricket, and you just, I don't know, it becomes your identity and you say to people, I'm a cricketer, even though I was not playing at the elite level. So I didn't know how to stop playing. So like, if I want to stop playing, what do I tell people I do on the weekend? I don't know. I, so I played for way too long, but loved loved every bit of it. But yeah, primary school teaching is what I studied and, and loved. What was very, it about? What was it about primary school teaching? Because that comes with its own set of challenges. What was it about yeah, relating to the kids? When I graduated, I became a. Well, actually, I'm not sure I've said this before. Anyway, but I remember my first lecture at Deakin University in Melbourne. There was 280 people in the course. And my first lecture were in this huge room and I counted five males and 275 females. I remember going, oh my gosh, jackpot, <laughs> this is going to be amazing. But that's not the thing I loved about primary school teaching, that everyone doing it was a female. But certainly as a 22-year-old, that was very exciting. But then when I got into teaching, it was, I don't know, I, I would always teach grade fours, fives and sixes. That was, I always ended up in that age group, 10 to 12. Yeah. And I love that stage of life where they still respect you, but you don't have to say anything, but they just respect the fact that you're a teacher, but they do have a bit of independent thinking. They make you laugh a lot with just outrageous questions and thoughts. 
but they love the more vulnerable you are as a teacher, the more honest you are with how you're going and you admit you don't know everything and the better response you'd get from them on all levels, not just education-wise but emotionally and social development when you were honest with your struggles. I just love that. I absolutely loved it and miss it. Like I, I now go to every, we've been to 1,500 schools across the country, but I don't get that ongoing relationship with the kids. It's like we're there for a little bit, then we're gone. So I, you know, I do miss that. I remember my fondest memory, almost challenging memory was when I took sex ed for, I taught at a girls' school straight out of uni. And the reason I did that was my sister had anorexia and this mental illness ravaged her as a kid. Like it was just brutal. And for some strange reason, I thought, I'm going to go to a girls' school and I'm going to teach there because I'll be able to stop them getting anorexia. <laughs> right. You know, which is just, I don't know how I thought I was going to do that, but I just had this feeling like I want to go and teach girls because if I get them at a young age, I can prevent them yeah. getting anorexia or any mental illness and I can stop their families going through what our family went through with my sister. So I ended up at a girls' school, but I remember the teacher I was teaching with said, right, you can take both the grade five classes for sex ed. And I said... Oh, right. Okay. And I was 24 at the time and I had 30 10-year-old girls and I developed this thing called the question box where if there's a question that you're embarrassed to ask, stick in the question box, I'll read it out. And first week it was, I actually researched the question so I didn't look like an idiot. But first week they were so easy, I didn't bother researching them for the second week. And the second week I just sat down and went, right, it goes question time. And I've pulled these questions out of the box. They were the most, <laughs> the first question, the first question was, what is a wet dream? And I went, oh, God, geez, I didn't see that one coming. And so <laughs> I said, well, and I could see them all like going, yeah, what is that? I, don't, I haven't heard of that before. And I said, okay, so it's a dream that a man would have that's it's a nice dream and they kind of like it. So it's a nice, it is a nice dream that a man has. And I saw them and they were like, all oh, right. And the girl said, why is it called a wet dream? <laughs> so I'm going, well, they might kind of wet the bed a little bit We're after it. They like it and they're like going, my dad wets the bed. <laughs> Some girl goes, does my dad get this? I went, yep, everyone's down there going, our dad's wet the bed. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. So it's not that. It's um anyway, and, and it was just absolute mayhem. And the next question was, do dogs, <laughs> do dogs get periods? <laughs> I remember going. Good question. Yeah, great question. And I said, and for some reason, I didn't want to act like I didn't know this. And I said, uh, no, no, dogs don't get <laughs> Period, that doesn't happen. And a girl said, I think my dog did. And I said, no, it probably cut itself. And she went, no, I went, no, no. Anyway, it was the most outrageous session. One of the girls wrote, what happens if you put your bra on upside down? Will people know? And I'm going, I'm a 24-year-old male. Like, I, don't, I can't believe this is what's happened to my life. I'm talking this. But those moments of just like, I don't know, we're all working out together and it's an important stage of your life. And I love school myself. So I don't know, there's something about being a primary school teacher, guiding young kids when you don't know the answers yourself totally. I mean, I still don't know the answers to lots of stuff, but letting him know that you don't know and you're still working it out. And, you know, I taught girls symmetry. This is how I taught them symmetry. One day I got up and I had a pimple right in the middle of my head. Yeah. And symmetry wasn't meant to be till like couple measurement wasn't for a little while later or whatever that category that came under. And so when we were doing maths, I got a ruler out and I got the girls to measure the distance from the pimple from one eye to the other and the other eye. And we worked out and I said, so draw a line. So we drew a line from the pimple to my eyes, the outside of my eyes. And I said, look at that. It's right in the middle. And I said, and that is symmetry. <laughs> and I'm positive. Well, I'll be honest, Sasha, I actually don't remember that. But one of the girls who I taught back in 2005 told me that story when she bumped into me the other day. She goes, do you remember how you taught a symmetry? And I went, no. And she goes, remember you had that pimple? And I went, oh, yeah, I did too. And so I think I loved that. It was an opportunity to teach maths, but also 
like an opportunity to teach people that like we're not perfect like we all struggle we all have things that are wrong with us and the more we're open about that the more we're i mean i didn't know the world was going to go through this perfectionist crazy ridiculous perfectionist thing through instagram and social media but i hope the girls that i taught learned that it's okay to not be perfect and you're not gonna look perfect all the time and i love that you can model that it's okay to not be okay and to model vulnerability and imperfection and because i think that kids need that and they don't see enough of it so there is my extremely long-winded answer <laughs> perfectly fine we have a podcast format here there is no, no true, true. there's no hurry for anything really <laughs> it's totally you know it's it's all good so uh so th- there was a point in your your journey when you ended up in in northern india yeah which is a, a very interesting part of the world and in the next 30, 40 years, it's going to prove to be a very interesting part of the world because that's where they kind of predict that the first really serious wet bulb heat waves will happen, right? which will make it a fairly uninhabitable place because people won't be able to survive being there. Any more than four hours at 37 degrees in a wet bulb temperature will kill a person. But you worked up there as part of your, your study. Do you remember getting off the plane? Do you remember getting there the first day? Yeah, so we'd been in India. I was there with my ex-partner who's a wonderful person and, and, and she's a great teacher. And we were both sort of backpacking around and she said, oh, let's go and teach somewhere in India. And I was thinking, let's go and get a paid job where we can fund more travel. And, you know, I'm 28. I feel like we should be earning money right now. Not. And she, really lovely person, she said, no, no, we've got to volunteer. Let's go and find somewhere where people need teachers but don't have them. And, and she found this village called Tixay up in the far north of India. And I said, yes. And we flew in there and I'll never forget the feeling. I'll I'll never forget. I was in shock, I think, to discover in this village there was no running water. There was no electricity. Uh, There are no beds. Everyone sleeps on a dirt floor. Uh, Not much English at all. In fact, there was barely anyone speaking English. But I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I think it was my memory serves me correctly. I think we'd agreed to do two weeks there. I remember thinking, I, I can't, I actually can't do two weeks, no shower, sleeping on a floor. And I remember we were living with a principal in his little mud hut. I remember thinking, oh, I think we should explain to him we meant two nights, not not two weeks. I can't do this. This is going to be, and she was a little bit more sort of resilient than I was. She's like, no, it's okay, we'll be fine. And I remember thinking, we, we won't be, there's no way we can do this. And then my next day was the first day teaching in the school. And I remember in my grade three class that I had, it was a, a dirt floor. There was a, a blackboard, one piece of chalk. The kids didn't have anything. They just sat, came and sat down. And I was thinking, how on earth do I make a class last for a whole lesson, let alone a whole day with no resources whatsoever? And I, I met this kid. His name's Stunson. And I, he was in the grade three class. And I remember thinking to myself after half an hour, never. I have never seen joy like this in my entire life. And I'm not saying claiming he's the happiest person alive, but I remember thinking, I've never seen joy like this, especially not a kid. And I'm thinking, this is extraordinary. I'm looking around thinking, they've got, there's nothing here that we would consider valuable, yet I've never seen joy like it. End of the first week, didn't even think about going home early. Didn't even consider it. End of the first week, I'm walking home with, with a family because you'd go over and have tea at people's houses. They'd all sit in a circle and they'd all put in the herbs and spices together, this chai, this beautiful chai tea that they had. And I'm walking home with this family thinking, it's not just this kid, it's everyone here. Everyone here is so unbelievably happy and they're so calm and they're so – it really hit me and I was thinking back to people I know and back home and how anxious we are, how depressed we are and how much we're in a rush all the time and we're always rushing to do this and that. And I was thinking, these people here, they haven't got much. My gosh, they seem happier than us. And 
we'd done our two weeks and and uh, we're considering going home. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to miss this place. And in fact, on one of our la- what was meant to be one of our last nights, I couldn't sleep. And the reason was I was thinking about my sister Georgia because I was remembering when she was back. And now my, my little sister. Um, when she was 14 years old, she stops eating. She develops anorexia nervosa. Now, she's an incredible story of resilience and hope in herself. But back then, she was really sick with anorexia and in hospital when she's 18 years old or 17 or 18 years old. She's meant to be at school, but she's in hospital. She dropped below crisis weight. So she was weighing in around 31, 32 kilograms, uh, nothing of her. My memory of her is a bit like those, like a horror movie type mm. um, scenario, a bit like that. And fast forward a few weeks, she gets out of hospital, but then she didn't recover from it. She was still sick for a few years after that. And I remember lying on this dirt floor one night at the principal's house where I was sleeping, just thinking, how is this possible? My sister grew up in Australia, loving family, nice home, went to good schools, had everything she ever needed growing up in life. Yet she's really finding it hard to be happy. Or like so many Australians, she finds it hard to be happy. And to go one step further, like so many Australians, she has a mental illness. Yet these people or this kid that I met in grade three have got so very little to call their own, yet I feel like I've never seen joy like it. And at that point, I remember thinking, do you know what? I don't think I want to go back to Australia. I think I want to live here. And I think I want to live here as long as it takes me to work out what is it that these people do every day that makes them so happy? Is there anything I can learn off them I could maybe talk to my little sister about? Um, And this happened 12 years ago. So that's pretty much how it played out as far as I, I remember. But I remember thinking that's – and so in the end, very long story short, I was there for three months in the end and I saw three things and I'm probably jumping ahead a bit in the conversation here. Osha, sorry, I just get very excited about this part no, of the story. No, do it. Take, do, you can go in any direction you like, mate. Okay, okay. It doesn't bother yeah. me at all. In the three months, I saw three things that these people seemed to stop their day and practiced every single day. And I'm a bit excited about those three things because I know they're three things that you have actually talked about in your podcast a lot. And so I know that you're going to be all over this stuff and probably a lot of your listeners will be as well, but it's just nice to hear other people doing it so well. But I saw three things I stopped their day and practiced every day. I joined in the three things that had a profound impact on me. But then I remember flying home back to Melbourne and I was thinking to myself, well, the fact that it had a profound impact on me, I don't know if that means a great deal because I've always, I don't know why, I've always been very lucky. I've always been a very happy person. So the fact that made a happy person a lot happier. I don't know if that means much. So I went back to uni when I got back to Melbourne. I studied, I did my master's of education. And all I did was really for that whole study was look at the research that sat behind these three things. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What were the three things you saw these people doing? 
So the three things that I saw them practice every day were gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And so I studied them at uni. I was, I was like, well, is there research behind these things? What am I? I know I'm not the first person to discover this stuff. What's the research say? And I nearly fell off my chair when I read that there is at least 40 years of research screaming at us. And I would love people to think about the current situation in the world, but there's 40 years of research screaming at us. If we want to feel happier, if we want to improve our mental health, if we want to help someone else or we want to help ourselves throughout a crisis, we've got to start practicing these three things, gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And that got me very excited. And so I quit my teaching job and decided I was going to run around Australia and tell school kids these three things. Very ambitious and very naive because it took a long time to get busy. And I sat around twiddling my thumbs for a lot and I was broke for quite a long time. But I'm happy I did because we now get to spread the message to many, many people about how you practice these three things, what happens to you when you do, which is really, really nice. So as we discussed earlier in the conversation, there's parts of our brains that are hardwired. There's parts. Of, I, was, I was speaking with my friend this morning that well, we were talking about a horrible event that happened at the Big Day Out in 2001 when a young lady died. And I remember the whole day getting this feeling going, something bad is coming. Really? Yeah. And my friend said to me, he said, oh, some people might call that a sixth sense, but I would say to you that that's, you know, 250 million years of evolution and that we subconsciously can recognize patterns of things that have happened before something has gone wrong. And we may not be present to it, but we're aware of it. And that, so similarly, I would say that inside us, we're hardwired for gratitude. We're hardwired for empathy. We're hardwired for mindfulness. These are the things that create a electrical reactions in our brains that release certain amounts of hormones in our bodies that make us not feel anxious, that make our heart rate decrease, that make our breathing mm. go more mm. steady. Uh, we're able to think clearer. We probably have better health outcomes over time. And that our brains are kind of hardwired for this stuff. And, and we somehow have distracted our way out of knowing this or being present to it. Can we break it down? When you were trawling through the library back then, I'm guessing you weren't on PubMed, um, but you were you know, actually having to pull weighty tomes out of a shelf. What does the science say about gratitude and empathy and mindfulness? Well, I think the really important conversation to have around the science is also to look at what they actually are. So often when I hear people talk about it, it goes a bit over my head because they're people who are so much smarter than me, they don't quite get the definition and then the attached science. So I suppose gratitude for me, like I remember my first day in that school I was telling you about in Tixay, the kids said to me, sir, come and see the playground. And they took me out to the playground. They pointed over their shoulders at it. And it was a, um, if I could describe it, it was kind of like one swing was attached, but it was only on one part of the swing. So it was just a straight line dangling down a chain. The other part, there was no swing attached. It was just two chains hanging down. And they pointed over and said, have a look at this. And my first instinct was, I thought they were saying, Look how bad this is. Oh, I've got broken swings. But then I looked at their faces and I realized something with big smiles on their faces. These kids were actually saying, hey, sir, check this out. And I realized what they were saying was, how lucky are we? We've got play equipment here. And that's what gratitude is for me. It's the ability to pay attention to what you've got, not to worry about what you don't have. And I feel like that's really relevant with what we're going through right now in our lives because there are so many things right now in the last couple of months that we can't do, places we can't be and people that we can't be with. And I think the more time we spend focusing on those things, the harder it is to be happy. Yet the more time we actually spend focusing on 
what we can still do, the people we still can see and the opportunities that are arising, the happier we're going to be. I think we're hardwired also to these days to pay attention to the negative. And so we're missing the incredible things that we still have. Like I remember last year, um, oh, sorry, 2018, we, we lived in Broome for a bit. I was um, doing some stuff in Indigenous schools around the West Coast and I remember the principal said to me, do you want to talk about gratitude? He said, I was in a community yesterday. He said, very underprivileged community, Indigenous community. And I walked into the school. He said, it was a corrugated iron shed. And he said, in the front row, there's a boy sitting there, an Indigenous boy about 10 years old. He's working away. He's got a pair of shorts on, tattered old shorts, and he's got one shoe on. He said, that's it, right? And I thought, oh, this poor kid, I have to try and get him some shoes. And at lunchtime, I saw him running around kicking the footy again with one shoe on. So I went over to him and I said, oh, mate, you've lost your shoe. And he said, he looked confused for a bit. Then he smiled and he said, no. I found a shoe. <laughs> Massive smile on his face. And he said, that's gratitude. And I said, bloody oath it is. Like that's, now I'm not advocating you know, poverty. And I'm just saying that when we look at what we can do and what we do have, we're going to be happier. And that's a challenge for people right now when I feel like things are taken away from us all the time. But, but back to your question around the science behind it, the best way to actually practice gratitude is to write down at the end of the day. Now, I've, I've heard you say this in this podcast before, so I don't want to go over what you talk about a lot. But if you want to be good at something in life, you've got to practice it. You can't finish listening to this episode and go, yeah, that makes sense. I'll be more grateful. If you want to be good at something, you've got to put the work in. I know that you talk about that a lot, Osha. So how do you put the work in on gratitude? It's pretty simple. Just write down at the end of the day, three things that went well for you. And I think the wording is really important there. What went well for you? Not what you're grateful for. So I think if you write down what you're grateful for, you're less likely to continue because you'll repeat yourself after a while. Family, friends, job, house, car, and then a few days later, you're repeating yourself. You get bored, you stop. What went well today? Now, this actual question has been cited over 6,200 times in academic papers across the country. So it's the research behind it is prolific really. But if you write down three things that went well for you every single day, what happens is after three weeks, you start to scan the world for the positives. You become better at paying attention to the positives. And after six weeks' time, incredible things start to happen to you, So, which has been pretty well documented. But I'll read out a couple for you here. You have more greater energy levels, less likely to get sick, which is a really interesting one at the moment. You're happier. You're more enthusiastic, more focused, more determined, more optimistic. Optimism is a huge one right now. I feel like there's a lot of people with not a great deal of hope and optimism in their lives. So if you're going to write down three things that went well for you during the day, if I could add a question to that, what are you looking forward to most tomorrow? I think is a really powerful one because you might look at it and go, there's actually nothing tomorrow. It's a bit of Groundhog Day in my life. So create something, create something looking forward to, whether it's a, a Zoom coffee with a friend or whether it's a, a walk down to the river with your kids or whatever it is, have something you're looking forward to. I think that's really important when we're talking about gratitude. And it wouldn't take you long. You know, if you're in a family and, and you're into it, that's a conversation you could have over the table quite easily. Perfect. And if you're alone, it would take you less than three minutes. Do you think it's important to write it down? Is it something we can type into a phone with our thumbs or is it better to do it longhand? Because I know this stuff can matter. Great question, Osha, because a lot of people ask me that. And I, I know people who write it on a shower screen door because it's like they're in the shower, they have a shower every night, they're not going to miss it, bang, just do it quickly in the shower and it takes a minute, it's done. I write them down a lot, but I never read back over them ever. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's overly important, but I do. Uh, I encourage families to discuss it over the dinner table. Getting your kids to do it is really powerful. I mean, there might be people thinking, mate, I've got a 16-year-old son. There is no way my son's going to sit around the table and go, well, here are my three things went well today. A lady asked me that the other day and I said to her, if you want your 16-year-old son to participate in some way, exclude him. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, have you got other kids? She said, yeah, I've got 
two girls, 14 and 12. I said, okay, so ask them, ask your husband, and then say, thanks, guys, that was really good. And she said, what if he asked? I said, if he says, what about me? You say, I didn't ask you. And then uh, she said, I can't do that. I said, I'm telling you, if you want your 16-year-old son to be in, to want to do it, you have to exclude him. And she said, oh, my gosh. Anyway, she emailed us and said it worked like beautifully. She said um, she asked her daughters, she asked her husband, and then her son said, what about – she says the first thing he'd said in about three hours. We said, what about me? And she said, I didn't ask you. And he said in a very aggressive way, apparently, he said, I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> aggressively told her the three things. And she said, now every night he aggressively tells us the three things. But be creative in your family with people you love. Yeah. Just get them to think about – it's little things. It's like I had a nice cup of coffee this morning. I got a really nice text message from my brother. I um, got a good run in traffic into work because of the condition or whatever it is, just yeah. little things. And it's amazing the impact it has on you. It's such a small thing, but I love the impact that it has is so big on your mental health. What's fascinating is that it's you're actively exercising the muscle in your brain that looks for – positive versions of what is coming into it. I, so I certainly know as someone who's been ill, when I, was, when I got really sick, every single piece of input into my body, tastes, touch, smell, what I would see, what I would hear, everything would go through this filter of doom and cataclysm. There was nothing in my field of vision. Like I'd see this, I'm holding up a jar full of water, right? I'd see this and go, but how much heat energy has gone into creating this glass? This glass has probably come from China. It's completely unsustainable. And what about the water? It's desalinated. Like it'd be never ending. Yeah. It wouldn't stop. I wasn't yeah. able to just go, fuck, I'm so lucky to have a glass of water. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I just wasn't, my brain could not do it. Yeah. And that's how yeah. I saw everything surrounding me. And exercising the muscle to get your brain to look at things in a positive way automatically is the important thing. Yeah. It fundamentally changes your experience of life. And, totally. And therefore the outcomes that you'll expect. Because if you go into something thinking it's going to be okay, whether it is or not, whether you get the outcome you want, you'll be a different person at the other end of it and therefore you'll go home. You won't bring that shit energy to the table. You won't bring that shit energy to your family. It changes everything. It's so, so, so important. And it's really interesting. Six and a half thousand studies, man. That's a that's a lot of research, a lot of uni research that's gone into figuring that out. It's great. <laughs> totally, totally. And I think the actual academic or the, the more scientific term for it when you – see something you're grateful for is a micro moment of positive resonance. I think that's what they call it. Oh, it's the MMPR, of course. Why didn't yeah, you say it? <laughs> <laughs> I should have just answered your last question by going MMPR. Of course. You know that. I know that. We all know Next. that. Who doesn't know that? <laughs> yeah. oh. and, and look, the empathy thing is the, is the thing that I find a tricky one. At the moment, yep. because yep. it's different now. Bear in mind that we are in close quarters and we are we are seeing people as people more and more. But over the last 10 years, since the invention of Twitter, 2009, I think it was. So what's that? 12 years now? 10 years, 11 years. I can't do maths. <laughs> the ability to dehumanize another person has just been so extraordinarily ramped up due to the technology that we use to connect with each other every day anyway like when i get a text from my wife someone who i adore i can't read tone still with her but i give her massive benefit of the doubt and i assume the usually if my brain's not being an idiot that day my ego's not jumping in i will assume the best intention when i read what she writes to me whatever it is can you get soy milk whatever yet yeah, we jump on twitter 
and we see something that somebody or Facebook or whatever it is, it's the same phone screen. It's the same pixels that we're looking at in the same part of the screen that someone we love has just written something to us. And yet we're able to then just go, that's obviously a piece of human garbage is written that fuck them, fuck everything about them. And we just respond in rage. And it's so easy for us to do that. It's so easy for us to have just zero empathy for another human being on the other side of those pixels. And now, you know, it's just getting more and more intense as we get more and more into communicating with each other over these devices that omit the human interaction that we're having. So empathy is a real tricky one to try and work on. How can we do that? That's such a great example. Like I think about like the things that people say via Twitter or Instagram comments or Facebook or whatever, they're things that you would never, ever say to someone's face ever. And I, I worry about young kids growing up through that environment because one of the ways you learn empathy is you you might, as a kid growing up, you might say something nasty to another kid and you see their response. You see it upsets them and you go, oh, I don't want to make that person feel like that. And so you don't act like that. But now when it's over a screen and it pops up on their screen, you don't see their reaction. I don't think they're going to learn. You know, they're not going to see how much that's hurt that person. Anyway, that wasn't your question. No, but don't, we can go down this road for a second. That's so important because there's one thing that you that is also very important about when you're in, and you say something horrible to somebody else, inadvertently, let's say, give yep. a benefit of the doubt, yep. and you see that person's face change, you feel horrible. Yeah. Inside your yeah. body, the yeah. need for acceptance, the need for the thing that got us to be a community that learned to live together and cooperate, that exists within us. Yeah. And it's important because it's the things that got us to survive. And that instantly, you're actually like, oh, shit, I've now somewhat ostracized myself from this person. I might not be able to get help from them in case I'm in trouble. I'm now one less ally uh, in case yeah. danger comes. Fuck. And you feel this, ooh inside your body and we can react to that with if our ego like me jumps in the way we go whoa and we can just then get angry or whatever because we're dealing with this icky feeling inside ourselves and that's the other part that we don't get to put together when we write something horrible online and it's gone to the sky we never think about it again we have no concept of you know we see a picture of someone and we go oh you're a bit fat for that and then yeah. off it goes. You don't see the hurt that it causes. No. And we don't, so you don't learn. We, nor do we feel it inside our bodies, yeah. our own bodies, of how icky yeah. it feels to do that. And that's really tricky, that dehumanizing stuff. That's, the, that's really dangerous once we start to dehumanize each other and have no empathy. And, and look, to be honest, if, if we have grown up with a smartphone in front of our face, and let's be honest, the iPhone came along in 2007, so there's 13-year-olds who've never not known life without it. Hmm. How might we be able to work on empathy with kids of that age? It's a fascinating area in light of what you've just laid out for us. But for me, it's really just the ability to psychologically feel how someone else feels. And the reason that's important is the research tells us that the more empathetic you are, the more likely you are to act in a kind way. And so what I love about that is that the neuroscience is fascinating behind kindness because every single time you do something kind for someone else, your brain releases oxytocin and that makes you feel happy. When you are actually rewarded for being kind, which is the most remarkable thing. This kid who I spoke about, who I saw sitting in the grade three classroom in India, he is the kindest. I don't know where he learned this. He is the kindest person I've ever met in my entire life. Second day I walked into his classroom, I smashed my head on the doorway because I didn't realize it was only up to hit. Well, not, not a good example for, <laughs> for a podcast, but it was only up to my forehead. The pimple zone. We like to call it the pimple zone. Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> so I walked straight into the doorway, smashed my head, and, and um, the grade three sort of was hilarious. And 
I remember saying, guys, I've hit my head hit. I went, yes, it's very funny. But the next day I walked back to the classroom and this little kid standing under the doorway with his arms folded, a big smile on his face and he's looking up at the doorway and I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, have a look. He'd found an old cloth or an old rag. I don't know where he'd found it, but he'd filled it with leaves and sand and he'd wrapped it all the way around the doorway to create padding for me just in case I smashed my head again. And I said, is it for me? And he said, yesterday was very bad. I said, yeah, it was. Thank you. My gosh. And then I was thinking, oh, maybe he's sucking up to the new teacher from Australia. Not what he was doing because I saw the next day we were playing cricket at lunchtime and he was batting. They used to use a whole lot of rubber bands as a ball, like all rolled up together, a stick from a branch. And he was batting and he looked over his shoulder. He saw a student four years above him sitting by themselves. So he put the bat down and he walked over and sat with them and he was basically saying, you okay, do you want to come and play with us? You look lonely. If someone wasn't at school because they're sick, you'd swing past their mud hut after school, just checking you're okay, you weren't at school. I was doing this talk end of last year to a group of neurosurgeons, literally brain surgeons. Now, that's an intimidating audience. <laughs> and one of them um, put his hand up and he said to me, if you want to understand why your little friend's so happy, he said, with what we know about the brain, he said, I don't mind the gratitude stuff. I don't mind that. The mindfulness stuff you're going to have to convince me on. But he said, this empathy stuff with what we know about the brain, this is why he's so happy. And he continued and he said, the powerful thing about your brain and empathy is your brain doesn't discriminate. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, if your little mate goes and does something kind for someone else, his brain releases oxytocin. That makes him feel happy. His brain doesn't say, oh, look, you sleep on a dirt floor and there's no electricity, no running water here. You don't get oxytocin. He said this before coronavirus. He said, no matter what you are going through in life, no matter what challenges you are facing, if you do something nice to someone else, your brain rewards you with this hormone that makes you feel happy. He said, we always have access to joy and happiness and it comes through doing things for other people. He said, isn't that lovely? And it is so true. One of the things that we're asking, I mean, to go back to your question around the science behind it and and how we actually practice it and what we're teaching in schools is we're actually getting kids to every day try a different act of kindness for a different person and write down how it makes them feel invariably it's it made me feel warm it made me feel nice it made me feel happy it made me feel joy i mean emotions is another really interesting one emotional literacy is huge and that's something that will really help young people with empathy is getting them to learn to explain the emotion they're experiencing as they're experiencing it because that helps us when we're older like a lot of us especially males a lot of males growing up when they have an emotion as a young kid they're crying or upset the response from it oh sometimes i was lucky i had a very sweet dad who never did this but a lot of dads will say stop crying grow up be a man don't be a girl and so as a young boy we go oh i don't want to have that i want to be a man i don't want to be a girl so i'm not going to have those emotion things i'm not going to cry so we kind of block them out but when we're older and we're in adult relationships and our partner says, are you okay? And we say, yeah, I'm fine. Because we don't actually know how to label the emotion we're experiencing. If we can't label it, we can't then own it and we then can't accept it and then sort of deal with it and problem solve it. And so I think a lot of what we do is teaching kids to recognize emotions, label them, work out why they're feeling like that. And that helps with empathy as well. Like you've got to be able to look at someone else and say, that person's feeling like that right now and this is how I can help them. Or that person feels like that, look how happy they look, I'm going to join in with them, what's going on over there. That kind of stuff's really important, I reckon. What if we're like in the middle of a, a zombie Facebook scroll on the toilet and we see something that someone that we really shouldn't be friends with on Facebook has written angrily against something like, and we start getting caught and we feel that flood and like, oh. how do we find our way out of that? How do we remember empathy in those moments? 
Well, it's a really funny one. I noticed myself early last year doing that, like responding to things of like, you're kidding. How can that person think that? Or, And like you said, people I don't even know that well. I'm like, what an idiot. Why would you? How can you think that? But I have, if you come back to the very basic level of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, well, there's a reason that they have said that. And it's most often they're not bad people. That's the way they've been you know, maybe that's their upbringing because their parents believe that. So they believe they haven't challenged it too much themselves. And maybe right now in their life, they're not feeling overly significant in their workplace. So they feel they need to feel significant somewhere else. And that's where they're doing it. So I kind of have got this thing where I say to myself, where someone says something outrageous, maybe it's something against something that I believe in strongly. So if it's against climate change or something, I, I like, I used to get really angry about that. Now I just, I sort of say to myself, what a goose. And I kind of just go, well, I feel sorry for them that they, well, not feel sorry for them. That's a bit patronizing, but uh, what a goose. They probably think this because that's what their parents think and they haven't challenged that. So that's fine. That's not their fault. If they grew up in my household with my parents, they'd probably think the same as me. So uh, I suppose that's kind of empathy, trying to put yourself in their shoes, but also it's too exhausting getting upset with yeah. what people write because there's a lot of shit out there. <laughs> yeah, there really is. And I guess it does come back to our brains weren't actually designed to cope with this many differentiating opinions. Yes. As a species, we exploded at this certain point of our evolution and our ability to digest whatever food we have, our ability, how much fat we store in our body, how many personal and, and intimate relationships we can have. There's a limit to all of those things and there's a limit to how our digestion works, everything, everything. But there's also a limit to how many dissenting opinions and how many people we actually need to care for. We really, truly cannot care for everybody. As much yeah. as our brains want to, that is probably comes we want to care for everybody in our tribe, in our village, in our, however many of the hunt, Dunbar's number. I don't know if it's 100%, 140. I don't know if it's been debunked or whatever, but it's not thousands of people, you know, yeah, yeah. let alone millions. So we, we actually do have a capacity over how many people we can, and eventually we have to just accept, okay, I can't change everybody's mind. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, there has to be a boundary. We have to allow a boundary. Otherwise, we're trying to hold back the ocean with our fingers. Yeah, know? totally. Totally. <laughs> it's so true. And so often when I see those comments on social media, I remind myself that that person is trying to get one of their psychological needs met. So where it's the need to feel love, the need for status, the need to belong, the need to feel that they are achieving something. I think often that's what it comes down to. That's a really good thing to remember in those moments when I'm filled with rage, when I'm filled with wanting to, you know, Audrey will look across at me and, are you getting into a fight on Twitter? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll respond like I'm a naughty boy. <laughs> Been busted. <laughs> Just that this person is trying to get their emotional needs met. Yeah, and that that's so often, you know, what it is. Like we... I mean, you, you look at social media, you look what people post. Mm. I think it's it's always the need to, and it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying we're bad people yeah. for doing it, but so often it's we want to get a psychological need met. And sometimes we post off, we look back and go, no, no, I don't know if I should have said that. But what it comes down to was perhaps, so here's an example of from my Instagram page. I did a post the other day and I wish I didn't do it because it's not really me, but we, so the book I wrote last year got nominated for a ABIA award and I found out, oh, that's really great. And I should have just left it there and gone, that's good. And then part of me went, oh, I wouldn't mind posting that. Actually, And I was like, no, don't do that. That's not you. You don't post that kind of stuff. Because I haven't been doing the face-to-face talks. I realized I haven't been getting – I usually get so much like, oh, congratulations. That was an amazing talk. Mm. Thanks for that. I'm sort of used to that. I haven't been getting it recently, which is totally fine. And But I posted this picture of the nomination. I was like, oh, I'm really excited to be nominated for this. 
and I posted it later. I was like, what the fuck did I put that up there for? That's not <laughs> like, like, like people will find out if they find, if they don't find it, why the fuck are you showing off? Why are you telling people this? Uh-huh. And then I got angry at myself and I was like, delete it. No, you can't delete it now. That looks even weirder. And so I left it there. And the next morning I thought about it and I was like, well, I was obviously craving some kind of like psychological need, which probably was for approval or for validation. One of our, we need validation. So I was probably doing it for that reason. And uh, I sort of forgave myself after I went through that whole process. But um, yeah, I think so often the reason we post is to get a psychological need met. What a brilliant way to deal with these things. When it comes to the, the mindfulness part, it's hard to do. We all have brains that want to work very hard. A lot of people confuse mindfulness with meditation. Yes. Because mindfulness is a form of meditation, that's for yes. sure. But they yep. might confuse the two. How do you define mindfulness? So as far as I'm concerned, mindfulness is when you're present and when you're calm, I suppose, relatively calm. I mean, we're not calm in Australia right now. The most common mental illness in Australia right now is anxiety disorder. I mean, that's before coronavirus. I shudder yeah. to think what it is now. Yeah. And we're not present. The research from Harvard, and I'm worried I'm going to get this wrong. I'm sure someone will let me know if I do get it wrong. But the research from Harvard tells us we spend 49% of our day thinking about the future and 34% of our day thinking about the past, Yeah. which gives us 15% of our day where we're we're actually there for whatever we're doing, which is really sad when you consider 100% of our day is the present moment, yet we only show up for 15% of it. Again, we're not bad people, but you know what that feels Everyone knows what that feels like where you, during the day you think, oh, I'm having a rough day. I just can't wait to get home and have dinner with the family or whoever it is. And then you get home and you're where you want it to be and you're sitting there and you realize, I haven't listened to a word anyone said for the last five minutes. So I'm thinking about the email I got to send tomorrow. I'm, so mindfulness for me is the ability to catch yourself doing that and then bring yourself back and go, no, be here sort of right now. And just on that thing about when we're thinking about the future all the time or the past all the time, when you're thinking about something that you can't control, like for example, we spend a lot of time right now thinking, what's the world going to look like in a month? What's it going to look like in three months' time? We have, other than staying at home, we have very, very little control over what the world is going to look like. But by worrying about something you can't control, that is very anxiety-provoking. But if you're thinking about what's happening right now, whatever you're doing right now, you've got control over that, so a lot less anxiety-provoking. So for me, mindfulness is the ability to be calm and it's the ability to be present. And I think a lot of the time people will hear about it and go, I'm not fucking doing that. It's because they think about someone sitting on a rock with their legs crossed, hands in the air, making weird noises, which can be a form of mindfulness. But I try and introduce just some really easy ways that don't take up time in your day. So I always suggest three different levels of mindfulness practice. The entry level, which is what I do, walk a lap of the block and pay attention to what you can hear. And this is stuff you've spoken about in your podcast before, but uh, or you can sit outside for five minutes. So I'll get out, I'll walk around the block and I go, I can hear my footsteps, I can hear the dog, I can hear the trees, I can hear cars. And then my brain says, now what time are you talking today? 11 o'clock, what time are you leave? I'll go that way, the traffic might be bad. I'll get a car. Oh no, hang on, no, no, no. What can I hear right now? I can hear the birds. I can hear a bus go past. And I have this dynamic where I go from thinking about what's happening later back to what I can hear. Every single time I catch myself thinking about something other than what I can hear and wrestle my thoughts back to what I can hear, that's practicing being mindful. So when I'm sitting around the dinner table and my three-year-old's telling me a story and I catch myself not listening to him, I bring myself back quicker. And that to me is one of the issues. We I, I don't know if it's just that I've got older, but I've noticed a lot in the last few years, people aren't very good at being present when you're talking to them one-on-one. They're not just their phones. I think our phones have trained us to be not good at this, but I feel like it's looking around for other things and we're kind of a bit twitchy. We're not totally there. I mean, you know people in your life that when you're with them, 
they are just so there with you and they're the they're best people to be around. So I think mindfulness practice at a very basic level is helping us to be much better people, <laughs> but it's also helping us to be more calm. So that's an entry level, walk a lap of the block, what can I hear? Next level up would be to maybe grab your phone and do a course or do it, get an app online. Sam Harris has just recently got an app called Waking Up With Sam, which I think is really good, which I'd recommend to people. There's another one called The Resilience Project, which I really love as well. (laughs) 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 But then there's Headspace and Calm, which are two beautiful apps as well. But I mean, they're my favorites, but you can spend 10, 15 minutes a day on an app and, and we got time right now. So that might be a good one. The third level up, which is what my wife does every single year, which I'm not brave enough to do. And I don't know if you've done this before, Osha, is Vipassana. Have you given Vipassana? I've, I've not done Vipassana. And <laughs> no. <laughs> well, number one, I've got a great excuse right now is that I'm on SSRIs and I've been told that my brain, because of the drugs that I'm on, and this may not be true, all right? So I'm just, this is what's been told to me by someone who went to Vipassana and it didn't happen for them. And afterwards, they went to their psychiatrist and went, I just went and I sat on my ass for 10 days and it was fucked. And they went, oh, the SSRIs don't allow you to drop down into the particular brain state. <laughs> and she's like, you could have told me that before I went. <laughs> so I've heard a lot about Vipassana, maybe not just yet. I'm still living in recovery of many things, but yeah, yeah. one of my, um, I, I don't know if he's a hero, but he's certainly somebody I look up to in the world as far as being able to deal with heavy shit and get along with his day, Yuval Noah Harari. He's an Israeli historian and author. He's extraordinary. He meditates twice a day and he does 60-day retreats, six zero. <laughs> All right. And then he'll get up and he'll talk. I mean, you know, he lives he lives in Jerusalem. Like it's a tricky neighborhood to live in, you know. And he yeah, he's yeah. he's able to just be. He's able to just exist. He's just able to in the way that Sam Harris wonderfully describes that, you know, the universe exists from the moment your skin ends and you are just this cavity of of cells appreciating the universe and you are alone in this space. And, you know, he's able to just be alone in this, you know, the ease that he glides through life. With And then he's able to then use that to talk about incredibly difficult things with extraordinary empathy and understanding. It's a superpower that I one day hope to get. But yes. yeah. I asked my psychiatrist about Vipassana and he went, yeah, not yet, mate. Yeah. No, you're a bit busy, <laughs> bit busy in the brain box with that one so far. Gee, you might just want to give it, a, give it a little more time practicing before you get to that point. But yeah. your, your wife's been, has she done it? Yeah, well, and for people who don't know what it is, it's a 10-day retreat, yeah. no talking, yeah. no eye contact about eight hours of meditation a day, which they train you to do. You only eat rice, fruit and vegetables, drink water and tea for the whole 10 days. You sit still. Yeah, and sit still like yeah. you're ellipsis in it. And my wife said the most painful thing is you're allowed to go whenever you want and you can see your car from the window where you're doing your meditation. Like you get up and go whenever you want. It's she like said, the That's bell probably... at Hell Week in SEAL training. Go ring the yep. bell, mate. Ring That's... the bell. <laughs> 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 so my wife does it every year and I'm in awe of her for doing that. And one of the things I love most about my wife is that she works, I mean, just like you do, she works so hard at her mental health and she is so committed to improving her mental health despite how hard it is for her. And I can see when she's really battening with her OCD, but this is a big part of it for her is going away for 10 days and doing this silent show. And when she comes back, like it's amazing. You know, she's so much more present and so much more calm as a result of I mean, she said to me day six and day seven are probably the hardest hardest two and a half days of a year 
she said a lot of stuff comes up and she said you cry a lot and you don't know why you're crying you're dealing with thoughts that you hadn't thought in a long time and memories you haven't you just pushed away but it all comes out and then day nine and ten she said it's just bliss like it's you're just sitting there so happy with who you are you properly love yourself and who you are you forgive yourself for all your shortcomings and she said you actually rather than just saying it because you know that's what you should be doing you actually feel it so yeah i'm not brave enough to do it myself i couldn't do i'd feel like i couldn't do it so i said the other day i'd rather do a marathon every day for 10 days than sit there doing nothing (laughs) for 10 days but that is if someone's thinking i want to change my life with meditation the person might be the go for you (laughs) yeah i've heard who was it rich i don't know somebody had not yeah richie had a singer by the name of mike posner on his show and mike described it he went for about half an hour describing the whole and it's the same all over the world i believe and he talked about the, the physical pain of sitting and not moving. Yep. Like I've, we've been speaking for one hour and 10 minutes and I've changed position 26 times because I've got <laughs> arthritic hips and whatever. But to sit completely still, I, my goodness, apparently. Anyway, so that's the, the big level, the big gun of mindfulness. What happens in our brains? You t- we talked about the oxytocin release when we have kindness. We talked about the uh, lasting effect of gratitude and that it, it gives us a different lens and therefore a different experience of, of the world. What does the mindfulness give us? Well, people can look up um, neuroimaging devices that have been – they actually look at from a, uh, the neuroscience. There are parts of your brain that actually start to light up that haven't been – that are functioning before and, mm-hmm. and oh, there's a whole list of stuff. I, I, I honestly couldn't cover it in this chat here, but the benefits are cognitive capacity, I think is the one that I hear a lot, men- mentioned a lot. One of the neurosurgeons that I, I spoke with back last year, he sort of bailed me up at the end and he said, oh, I know everyone was taking the piss out of your mindfulness stuff a bit, but I have to say that for me, the mindfulness stuff I've done has made me a better surgeon. And I said, oh, in, in what regard? He said, oh, mental clarity just through the roof. I said, oh, my ability to focus and to be agile within and to problem solve on the spot as a surgeon since I've been doing mindfulness, he said, has just been life-changing. And I said, why didn't you stick your hand up and say that when they were taking the piss out of me? <laughs> And he said, no, I just wanted to let you know because I thought they were a bit rough on the mindfulness stuff. But he said, for me, mental clarity, cognitive capacity through the roof, which is really good. I mean, with these three things, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness, I feel like you do one, it allows you to do the other as well as well. So like the more present you are, I mean, this is very obvious, but the more present you are, the more likely you are to notice something good happening around you or notice an opportunity to be there for someone else to, you know, to show empathy. But then the more grateful you are, the more you probably feel emotionally in a space to sit down and just be still for a bit. So I think they work in together quite nicely. We Fortuitously, it has the acronym GEM, Gratitude, Empathy, Mindfulness. So we didn't start this, but a lot of people on social media have been saying, oh, I had a, <laughs> this is how I found out about the acronym. I was walking down Station Street near where I live a couple of years ago and a lady walked past me and she said, uh, I'm still doing GEM. I said, I beg your pardon. And she said, I'm still doing gem. And I'm thinking, who's gem? What are you talking about? And I said, sorry, what do you mean? She said, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. And I went, how have I not picked this up? It's a really nice acronym. But of course, I'm not saying that these are the only three things you should be doing to improve your mental health and to feel happier. I think the big ones, the other big ones, which you talk about a lot already, Oshira, exercise, sleep, diet, and connection. I think if I could, um, I mean, the the, the interview you did with Johan Hari, I, I think I've listened to it maybe Six times. Yes. <laughs> I've read his book that many times. I've read yeah. his book like a few times, but I keep – it just makes – like I know what he's going to say. I can recite parts of his podcast bit off by heart, yeah. but I just love hearing it because it's just around how important connection is, I find, yeah, to be absolutely incredible. It's fascinating and 
particularly in this time when we are now just discovering, oh, this has been here the whole time. I can just talk to my neighbor. (laughs) They used to be parodies and it was the butt of a comedy sketch when I was a little kid of the person that would, you know, there'd always be a sketch of two neighbors speaking over a fence or the, you know, I left a cake on someone's front porch or, and it was a ha ha ha, but well, fuck, we did it for a reason. Yeah, totally. Know? But then we got sold this lie of that's not what can make you happy. You need another USB lead that you are <laughs> going to then throw away. It's going to go into landfill. That's what you need. Another USB lead with the plug that nobody uses anymore. <laughs> that's what you need, you know, <laughs> if you want true it, happiness. Totally. And I know that Johan talks about this, but it's like the if so many people in Australia live by the if and then model of happiness. If I buy this iPad, then I feel happy. If I get this promotion, then I feel happy. If I end up in this relationship, then I feel happy. If I buy this car, they're all normal things to want, but just don't pin your happiness to it because in six months' time, there's a better iPad coming out and you'll think, oh, I need that. In a year's time, you'll you'll get a promotion. That's nice. But then a year later, you start going, shit, what's the next jump up for me? What's the next promotion? If I get that, then I feel happy. Happiness comes from what we already have. But we are so good at going, but if this happens, then I feel happy. And I'm literally stealing stuff from another one of your guests. So I probably shouldn't go down that area, but it's so true. <laughs> Mate, as your neurosurgeons would probably tell you, look and look, listen to this here. It's not rocket science. You know, it's there. <laughs> we know that if we lift this certain amount of weight, this many reps, this much time under tension, we give our body a rest, we go and do it again, we give our body yeah. a rest, we eat right, muscle will grow. Our body mm. will adapt. We know that. It is freaking mm. science because that's what our bodies do. Similarly, this is the lifting of the weights and this is the reps and this is the workout that we do in our brains to make sure it works properly because we have forgotten or we've gotten out of the habit or the, the general way of our life that used to take care of these things is gone. You know, we used to forage. We used to walk through the woods. We used to farm. We used to do whatever. We moved to get our food. We earned our food. We commuted under our own power through the nature of how we lived. We never had separate rooms, all right? So it's not only an architectural thing that's been around since the Industrial Revolution. We, people slept 12 to a room. They were just in each other's physical space all the time. Mm. But we've since started to isolate ourselves more and more. So all these things were taken care of just by how we lived. And yet now we're kind of undoing all that to the point where, you know, it won't happen for a little while, but you'll be on a bus full of people and every one of them will be in their thing. But as today... Audrey and I went to go get a heater because we moved into a, an old house. Well, it basically, hang on. It's a wind tunnel that has been made to look like a house. <laughs> it's old. It's like 114 years old, this place. It's great. It's great, but it's it's yeah. it's drafty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I opened the trunk at the loading dock and the guy went to put the heater in the back and he goes, how's your isolation going? And I was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's tricky, but it's okay. And we just had this, had this moment, you know. The rest of my life before today, I was like, here's a nice bloke in high-vis who's going to lift something up into my car because I've got hands full of baby, and I'll say, thanks, mate, and I'll be on my way. But instead, yeah. we had this moment. He's sharing it. I'm sharing it. We're in this together. Yeah, there it is. And it was bloody lovely. Yeah, know? and it's nice, isn't it? It's so true. That that being together is, I don't know. You think about what technology has done. Like 10 years ago, if you want to watch a movie, you would call up a friend, go, this movie's out. Why don't we get a coffee beforehand? We'll catch up. We'll have a catch up. Watch the movie. You stand around the car park, chatting to him for half an hour afterwards, and it feels good. And you drive home feeling all just energized. Now you go, oh, I'll just stream it on whatever in bed on my iPad, and you watch it. But that's the like the technology is great for so many reasons. 
but it's also taking us away from what we know is so good for social connection is so and so often you can't be bothered or you don't feel like it but when you do it you just feel so good afterwards and i i fear for the better technology gets the more disconnected and lonely we are becoming i think it'll be like a rubber band I think that we will have that stretch away and then a snap yep. back and this stuff will eventually end up in the coding. It will end up in the user experience of the, the actual use of the software, I feel, or the hardware. I hope you're right. I really hope you're right. I think it has to be because ultimately yeah. what do they want? They want happy people, alive people who will buy more of their product or keep using their product. If mm. somebody else shows up and they write this algorithm, because right now the algorithms are all around addiction, how can mm. we 100% get this person to either read more news articles or stay on this app for longer? All right. Mm. Everything is centered around those things in our brain that make us peck the button in the Skinner box. You know, that's that's what we're doing, yeah. right? But if we if you want to know what a Skinner box is, you've got Wikipedia. Anyway, similarly, I, I personally feel it'll get hardwired into the coding. It's like, okay, so what part of this can make the user feel good to the point where, oh my God, have you heard about I'm gonna make up a name, have you heard about the new app glass jar of water? It's amazing. I talk to all my friends and when I'm done with it, I feel fantastic. Yeah. After I walk, look at Twitter, I feel like, I have to go do something. I don't <laughs> have Facebook because I feel disgusting when I look at it. So I don't yeah. have it anywhere. I don't use it. All right? Yeah. That's not how I would want people to talk about my products. I want yeah, people true. to talk about my product going, I feel fucking great <laughs> when I use it. And then I'm done. <laughs> so uh, I think it'll end, up, it'll end up in the code, I reckon. It'll be a while, but it'll get there. Anyway. I hope so. I heard someone tell me the other day that it... Uh, Netflix conference or whoever it was, the CEO got up and spoke about their main competitor at Netflix and he asked them to guess what it was and no one, none of any staff got it and he said, our main competitor is sleep. And he said, that is our number one rival. And I was like, he said, we've got to work out ways to make people go, no, I don't need to sleep yet. I don't need to sleep yet and that's all around that. So um, I, I, I love your analogy of a rubber band. I hope that filters through to Netflix. <laughs> I, look, I, think I, I think it will. I think it will. <laughs> to tie a little bit of a button onto this storyline that we started with, what happened to your sister? And people can explore her story. It's online if people want to find her story. She's uh, very generously shared it. You've shared it and you've written quite eloquently about it. There was an article uh, that you wrote for Mamma Mia, which was quite good, if people want to go and explore that. But part of the thing that drove you to teaching was to, you know, I want to save other families from what what my family went through and what my sister went through. Like I, I know because I've met her and I've, I was, you know, around her for a couple of months there. How is she doing now and how did things work out? It's a really nice way to, to sort of round out the conversation. And my answer now is very different to what it would have been four or five months ago because I wrote about my sister's anorexia in my book, which came out in the last year. And I sent it to her and said, anyway, here, I need you to be okay. Are you okay with this? And can I share this? Can I share that? And she said, yeah, that's fine. I sent it to her. And she left me like a 15-minute voice message the next day. And she was devastated with what I'd written. And I was, I felt sick and thought, oh, my gosh, I thought she's okay with this. What she wasn't okay with is I didn't talk enough about her recovery and how incredibly well she's done to go from being someone who was, I mean, we nearly lost her when she was 18, to someone who now is providing so much good in the world. So uh, I'm happy you've asked that question because I want an opportunity to talk about my sister's recovery. But, I mean, you know, mid-20s, she's still quite sick. And gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness played a huge part in her turnaround to the point where she's now got this program running in. I mean, she heard about gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, amongst other things. She started practicing it. Her mental health started to improve. Every single night, my sister writes down three things went well with her day. 
well, I think she wrote Three Amazings. Uh, she's very LA now. So she writes her Three Amazings. She'd do a meditation once a day and empathy is her life. So right now she's running programs in Rwanda around health and education over there. She's got all over the different continents, but she's also doing this program in LA right now where she's actually painting murals on the kids' walls, in, not the kids' walls, but in the, the projects or the commissioning flats, I think we call them here. But she's actually brightening up the kids' spaces with them, teaching them how to do murals, doing them with her. And I've just seen as these walls brighten up, so too does her life. And she's just getting better and better and better. And it's because one of the big reasons is she's committed to this gratitude, empathy, mindfulness stuff, not because of me. She came across it herself. I certainly don't take credit for that, but it's been a big part of her recovery. And it's been amazing to watch, but I feel like the more she does for others, the better she is. I, and I'm, I'm not saying that we all need to do work on ourselves and she, that's robbing her of all the credit. She's got a counselor and she's doing a therapy and she's doing a lot of work there as well. So that is a huge part of it. But she's also doing this stuff, which has really, really helped her to be in a really good place now. So she said, I'm not happy with that what you've written in the book. And so I actually wrote a whole new last chapter and it was all about the great position my sister's in now. She is the best, most incredible. Because for years I, I put up this picture of her and the kid in India and she said, you make it look like uh, I'm the person who struggled and, and we're, we're both people who struggled. But she said, I'm a great story of resilience in myself. You talk about him being really happy, but you didn't talk about me being happy and I'm happy now. And it was fair enough that she wanted the world to know that because I talk about her illness. So yeah, that was kind of the final chapter of the book was talking about my sister's recovery and how good she is now. So I'm glad you've given me the opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> well, look, to be honest, and it's fair enough, she didn't know me that, you know, we were friendly, but when I met her, she disclosed that she did go through anorexia. She did disclose that to me, but all the reasons that caused the trauma that sent her down that path, she didn't disclose, which is totally fair enough. Mm. But she struck me as someone who, yes, absolutely, works 100% every day to make sure that she is as best as she can be. And it's the same with the gym. You can go to your PT for an hour, but if you then go out of the gym through the drive-through, get a supersized meal and some shakes, and then sit around the house all day playing PlayStation, eating takeaway, it's not going to do the job. So you can go to your therapist for an hour, but if the other 23 hours of your day, you're not doing the work, then it's going to undo, it's not going to work. And, and she struck yeah. me as someone who was just vibrant and full of life and glowing and, and truly just vivacious and full of vitality. All right. And this is 2012, 13 when I was over there. And so clearly, man, whatever she's doing, it's working. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> it truly is. I, I think it's a great point around doing the work. Like, I think you might've said this in another episode somewhere, but like getting a therapist is one thing, but you've got to treat it like dating as well. Like yeah. find someone that works for you. Like, you yeah. don't go, right, I'm, I've got this person, that's my person for life. Like no. I feel like you don't learn off people you don't like, so you need to like the person. I think that's really important. But that, that is just my personal view to like the person. I think it's a really big one because I think people don't care what you know until they know that you care. So find someone that, that where you really feel like they care for you. And yeah, and I know you've done a lot of work in that, you know, finding the, the best person for you. Yeah. My sister's done that. It's been great for her. So, But I just love that you someone like you talking about as openly as you do about your mental health struggles. I'm, I'm sure you know this, but it's just so empowering for the rest of us. <laughs> I think it's such an important thing that you do. You'll probably edit this bit out, but I, I, I think it's so, so powerful, the conversations that you have and how open you make yourself because it, it normalizes something that I think some people go, fuck, 
I know exactly what you're talking about. It's okay to feel like that. If someone like Osh is feeling that, then then I'm I'm all right. Oh, we're in this together, you know. So, um, thank yeah, you, I love buddy. it. I love that you do this. It's very, I'm very, very grateful, mate. I I'm I couldn't be happier that I get a chance to speak with you today. I know you got a heart out. Sorry, I kept you a minute late. You're the best. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'm glad you don't have to travel back from Adelaide. Have a great night with your family. You're amazing. Thanks for your time, bro. Thanks, Osh. Straight back at you. Thank you, mate. It's a privilege. That is Hugh Van Quellenberg. You can find the work that he does, theresilienceproject.com.au. His book is called The Resilience Project, Finding Happiness Through Gratitude, Empathy, and Mindfulness. Get it where you get your books. It's a cracking read. Very important in these times. I'm really grateful that he was able to come on when things started to get locked down and we could see the world shifting. Rach and I had a good sit down and kind of targeted a few people that we thought would be really important to get on the show and voices we can amplify in this current situation he was definitely one of them and we're really grateful that he came on the show and grateful that he was so generous with his his knowledge that he shared we're really really lucky all right i was supposed to be leaving today so i had my bike all packed away in my box if you ride a bike you know how much of a punish that is but i'm like you know what i'm stuck here for a little while now so i unpacked the bike again so i'm about to go for a ride uh all right you legends, take care. If you need anything, let me know. Send us your email at gmail.com. Look after yourselves. Wear a mask. Keep your distance. Wash your hands. Wash your groceries. Outside, close stay outside. Inside, close stay inside. Gattaca showers. If you don't know what a Gattaca shower is, go and watch Gattaca. Great movie. There's a great shower scene in it. Not that kind of shower scene, but it's a good shower scene. But yeah, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to do. And we'll do it and we'll be right. All right. Look after yourself, look after your neighbours, reach out to somebody, have a chat, spend 20 minutes on the phone with someone, and I'll talk to you next time. I'll see you on Friday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.